0: Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson.
1: Of course, we want our lives to lend support to our words, but listen, it's not your life, it's not my life that saves people, it's the gospel that saves people. That's the truth about it. People are going to get saved because other people tell them about the good news of salvation through Jesus.
0: Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Acts. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Acts, chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, in a message titled, Joy in the City. Now, here's Pastor Brian.
1: Here, picking up in... Really, the eighth chapter of the book of Acts as we're making our way through the book of Acts, and let me let me remind you of something that Luke recorded for us in the very first chapter of Acts. And you, you, maybe you remember this: in the first chapter of Acts, Luke tells us that Jesus, before he ascended after his resurrection, before he ascended, he had told the disciples. Uh, that they were to to wait in Jerusalem because they were going to receive power when the Spirit came upon them. And he said, and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth. So everything up until this point in Acts, everything has taken place in Jerusalem. So the first part of the mission, phase one, if you will, Jerusalem, they have accomplished that now. A few chapters earlier, we read there were the leaders of the nation. They accused the disciples of this. It was a good thing from our point of view. They said, you have filled Jerusalem with this man's teaching, speaking of Jesus. So they did it. They accomplished the mission of starting in Jerusalem. Now, phase two of the mission begins. So now the gospel going from Jerusalem is going to Judea and Samaria, but it's going in what I believe was a completely unexpected way, and that is through persecution. Now, in our last teaching, we looked specifically at the martyrdom of Stephen, and now we see as we pick up and continue the story that a great persecution breaks out. As a result of what happened with Stephen. So, the aftermath is that a great persecution arose against the church, and all but the apostles were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And as I previously said, remember, persecution and martyrdom have done more to advance the gospel than to stop its progress. And here we see that the outward thrust of the gospel into Judea and Samaria is directly related to the believers being driven by persecution out of Jerusalem. God often uses adverse or unpleasant circumstances to move us out of our comfort into his will. Because we have a tendency, it's just a human tendency, to settle into a comfortable place. Now, I, I think we could argue that things in Jerusalem had become, you know, fairly comfortable for most people. They were just, it was great. You got all of these new believers in Jesus as the Messiah. There's at least 5,000, we know, because the, the record gives us that number, but there were probably more. And everybody was just having a a great, great time, maybe to the point where they even sort of just forgot about the mission. They might have just, you know, not really thought that, hey, maybe we should go to, to you know, out further into Judea. Maybe we should even go to Samaria. Maybe that was just not even in their minds at this point. But now suddenly through this persecution, they're driven out. And it's as they're driven out that the gospel actually goes. So I don't think that they ever imagined that that's how the mission would be advanced, but that is what happened. And, and I say that because I just want to remind you that sometimes the discomfort, sometimes the unpleasant things that are happening in our lives, they're actually God's way of moving us because we can get settled. We can settle so easily into comfort and to complacency. And, and so sometimes the Lord sort of, you know, he, the nest, you know, he he wants to kick us out of the nest. So he stirs up the nest in order to move us out. So just a, a quick reminder, maybe somebody here today just needs to be encouraged by that truth. So what we want to do today is there are three things that I want to focus on. Number one, how the gospel spread. Number two, how the gospel impacted lives. And number three, how the gospel transformed the city. But before we do that, I want to just take a minute and talk about Samaria and the Samaritans. Now, some of you are are familiar with Samaria and the Samaritans, uh, but some of you aren't. And we need this. uh, I think this is a good backdrop for what we're talking about. Now, Samaria, if you look at a map, Samaria was just smack dead center between Jerusalem and the Galilee. So that's where Samaria was. Now, Samaria was the ancient capital of the northern kingdom. Maybe you remember at a certain point, Israel split into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern. The northern was based in Samaria, the southern was based in Jerusalem. So this was formally the capital of the northern kingdom. And became the home of the Samaritans. Now, prior to the Assyrian invasion in 721 BC, uh, there, there were no Samaritans, they, they didn't exist as a people because what happened is when the Assyrians invaded and conquered Samaria and led most of the Israelites into captivity, they left a number of Israelites in the land, but then they relocated people from other parts of their kingdom into the region of Samaria so that they would intermingle and intermarry with the people so that that people that remained in the land would lose their identity as Israel. And so that's exactly what happened. So they became the Samaritans. They were a mixed race, basically. They were, had Israeli blood, but then there were these other nations that they cohabitated with and, and you know, married and, and so forth. So, so the Samaritans became a separate people from Israel after 721 BC. Now as a separate people, they had a separate religion and their religion was a mixture of Judaism and paganism. So remember, they're, they're partially Israeli I'd say Israeli instead of Jewish because Jewish is more connected to Judah but so they're they're partially Israeli they have that long history of you know being Israelites but then the pagan influence comes in so their religion becomes really a mixture of the two they built a rival temple to Jerusalem and established a rival priesthood and that temple was built on Mount Gerizim which is a a, a mountain there near Samaria and it was built in 400 BC. Now, they also had their own version of the scriptures. And what they did is they rejected everything except the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, they, everything except what Moses wrote. But what they did is it was, a, it was a translation into Aramaic and then they sort of adjusted it to, to sort of you know, fit their perspective on things. So they had a temple, they had a priesthood, they had their own version of the scriptures, but in approximately 107 BC, a Jewish ruler known as John Hyrcanus, he destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim and subjugated the Samaritans, so that by the time we get to the New Testament, that's where we are, by the time we get to the New Testament period, there are literally centuries Of racial and religious hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. So, the reason I'm giving us all of this background is to show us that the gospel now is going to not just geographically leave Jerusalem and Judea, it's not only crossing a geographical barrier, it is crossing a, or a geographical border, it is crossing a racial and a religious border as well. And you see, at this point, even though Jesus had spoken to the disciples about the fact that he had other sheep, about the fact that the gospel was going to go into all the world, at this point, they still didn't quite get it. They still thought of it as primarily a Jewish thing. I mean, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's, going to, he's the, the descendant of David who's going to sit on the throne of David. He's going to rule over the house of Jacob. And so in their minds, the Gentiles you know, eventually probably would be brought in to be blessed by this, but they never imagined that the Gentiles were gonna be brought in and and just made one with them in the sense that the New Testament speaks of it. So this is a radical thing that is happening here, but remember, Jesus himself had already begun to break down that wall of division, and that had happened during his earthly ministry when he intentionally went into Samaria with the gospel. We have that beautiful story of Jesus meeting that woman, that, she's just commonly referred to as the Samaritan woman, uh, at the well, and he has a conversation with her. She's actually shocked because she's like, what are you a Jew doing speaking to me? Uh, I'm a Samaritan, Jews and Samaritans, we don't talk to each other. So that, that was the tension that existed between them. But Jesus said, if you knew who I was and if you knew the gift of God, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. Anyway, Jesus goes on to reveal to her that he is actually the long-awaited Messiah. And she goes and she tells the people back in her town that that's the case. And they come out and, and Jesus is with them for a few days and he preaches to them. And many of them embrace him. But now some time has passed and the Samaritans have... Probably in the minds of the church in Jerusalem, they've probably just been forgotten. Not intentionally, but just, well, hey, we're, you know, we're doing this. But, but remember, Jesus said the gospel was going to go Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And so here we are. The gospel is now going into Samaria. And so the first point that I want us to look at is how the gospel spread. And so it tells us right here in verse four, therefore, those who were scattered because of the persecution that was led by Saul, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So this is the first thing that I want us to notice. How how is the gospel spread? Those who were scattered. Who were those who were scattered? It was just everybody. All of these believers, and as I already mentioned, there were at least 5,000 that were in the city. It's probably more by this point. But, but everybody except the apostles, they've got to leave Jerusalem because the, the, the persecution is so intense. Like the third verse says, Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So you know people were saying, man, we got to get out of town. This is dangerous. And as they went... They preach the word everywhere. Now, the picture is this. The picture is that ordinary Christians, as they went into these various communities outside of Jerusalem, ordinary Christians told their story and talked about Jesus. They talked about who he was. They talked about what he had done. They talked about how they had been forgiven and transformed. In other words, they just simply went out telling their testimonies, or, t- or telling the story of the gospel. You see, the word preached here, where it says that they went everywhere preaching, that, that's, that word means just to, to talk about. It just means to tell it. And so that's what they did. Ordinary Christians just going about life and telling the story of what Christ had done. But now we come to Philip. And so verse 5 says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, And preached Christ to them. And what I want us to see is this is a different thing that is being described that Philip did from what the the other group did. Now, Philip, remember, if you go back to chapter 6, there was a situation that arose where they needed seven men who were of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, to take care of this practical ministry. Remember, it was distributing to the needs of the widows. Now, out of the seven men that were chosen, Stephen was one, and now he's been martyred. He was put to death. Another one is Philip. So now we follow the story of Philip. Now, Philip, he is known, he's referred to later on in the history, he's actually referred to as Philip the evangelist. In Acts 21, verse 8, that's the way he's referred to. Paul, at that point... Saul, we know Saul gets converted, he becomes Paul, and way down the road in the history here, he comes back into the land and he goes to the house of this man, Philip. And Philip is designated there as Philip the evangelist, one of the seven. And when it says here that Philip went to Samaria, now, why Philip went to Samaria, who knows? I mean, maybe he just felt a prompting from the Spirit like he was supposed to go there. Maybe he, he wasn't with Jesus when Jesus had gone there originally. There is a Philip who was an apostle who went with Jesus, but this is a different person. But maybe he heard the story from them about the work that God had done among the Samaritans during the public ministry of Jesus. We don't, we don't know why he went to Samaria, but, or maybe he just heard that Jesus said that we were supposed to go there, so that's where I'm going. But note this, this is not a place that a Jewish person would normally go. It was Samaria. They were not on friendly terms. There was racial tension, there was religious hostility. But regardless of that, Philip, for whatever reason, he knows that that's where he is supposed to go. So he goes and it says that he preached Christ to them. And this is a different word. There's two Greek words that are being used here. The first word, in reference to those who were scattered and went everywhere preaching, like I said, it means more to, to you know to tell the story. The word here it means to proclaim. So this word is really more what we would probably think of when we think of preaching. Because when we when we think of preaching, I think most of us, at least you know, I do. When I think of preaching, I think of somebody who is uh, you know forceful. Passionate, articulate, authoritative, in in a good sense. But, you know, just there's a powerful, clear, direct proclamation of something. That's what Philip was doing. So it's almost like you could imagine you've got the two things. You've got the people just going everywhere, whatever new community they're coming into. They're telling the story about Jesus of Nazareth. They're telling about how he died and rose again from the dead and how the Holy Spirit came down and how he's changed their lives. But then you go into Samaria and here's this guy, Philip. And he's maybe like in the city center and he's preaching. He's proclaiming boldly and authoritatively the gospel. And the reason why I'm emphasizing and developing this is because what I want us to see is that God uses both everyday believers to tell the good news and gifted evangelists to proclaim it. And we need both. Now, remember, the goal is to get the gospel out. That's what, that's what they were supposed to do. And that's what guess what? We are supposed to do as well. But sometimes we make the mistake of just sort of depending on the gifted evangelist. We think, oh, well, I'm I'm not an evangelist. I can't do that. That's for somebody else to do. Well, right. We're we're not necessarily gifted evangelists, all of us, but we all are to go out and to tell the story of who Jesus is and what he's done. So it, it has to be both, and God uses both, and sometimes uh, it's through just the, the ordinary Christian out in the community, out in the workplace, or you know, wherever you might be, you're telling your story as the opportunity arises, and it's through that that God is planting seeds in people's lives. It's through that that God is, is bringing the information necessary to them for salvation. But then, of course, there are those, those gifted evangelists and thank God for them, and we need more of them who have those kinds of opportunities to proclaim in a clear, direct, powerful way the gospel of Jesus Christ. But again, my point is this that the gospel must go forth verbally to have an impact. You see, we cannot make the mistake of thinking that we never need to say anything. You know, we, we might just think, well, you know, I'll just live my Christian life and that'll, that'll speak loud enough. Now, we should live our Christian lives, make no mistake about it. But we have to say things. We have to, to verbally express. Paul, later, would write to the church in Rome and he would ask this question he would say, how can they believe in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear unless someone tells them? That, that is the reality. If people are going to hear, they've got to have someone tell them. And it's either going to be the ordinary Christian, the average Christian person on the job, in the neighborhood, in the community, at the sporting event, or you know, whatever other context you want to put it in, uh, or it's going to be that evangelist. Now, perhaps you've heard the saying falsely attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Maybe you've heard it. This is kind of a paraphrase. There's different ways of it being communicated, but maybe you've heard the saying, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. You ever heard that before? Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Well, first of all, Francis of Assisi never said that he was a preacher. He did not say that. It isn't true. It's one of those myths that sometimes arise. But here's the truth. You must use words to preach the gospel. You you can't preach the gospel without words. It's almost like saying, feed the poor, and if necessary, use food. (laughs) You know, okay, that doesn't make any sense, right? Well, likewise, it doesn't make any sense to say preach the gospel, but, you know, if necessary, use some words. No, of course we want our lives to lend support to our words. But listen, it's not your life, it's not my life that saves people, it's the gospel that saves people. That's the truth about it. Now, again, our lives can certainly lend credibility. And if our lives are completely inconsistent with the message, then, you know, people might have a hard time listening to it. But the truth of the matter is, people are going to get saved because other people tell them about the good news of salvation through Jesus. So that's how the gospel gets spread. It gets spread by word of mouth. We talk about it. We tell about it. Now, I know that for some people, this is very difficult. It's even difficult to hear this because you feel like, oh gosh, this is so, this is so hard for me. I just, I get so embarrassed or I get so nervous or, you know, I understand that. But listen, God will help you. The Holy Spirit is there to, to, to help you. And he will open up doors. You don't have to go kick a door down. But when God opens a door, you want to walk through it, so to speak. And this is where we have to just remember that, you know, we do need to speak to people. I was talking to a young lady after the the first service today, and she said, you know, she said, I I, that whole thing that you talked about, she said, that was me. She said, I am absolutely petrified to speak to people. I just hate, uh, I hate rejection. I I just that's the worst thing in the world. So for me it's like I know if I talk to this person they're going to reject me. So she had the hardest time and she but she knew at the same time that she needed to be able to open her mouth. So, uh, you know, she told me about a book that she read and, and it, how much it helped her, but but she was talking about one part of the book where the guy was saying, you know, look, you can have, you can pray all you want and you can have the soil and all of that, but unless you put the seed in it, nothing's gonna happen. And that's true. So let's not make the mistake, not to undermine the importance of living a godly life, but just remember that just you know, well, another, another quick example, another lady shared this with me this morning. She said, you know, I had a friend when I was young and I saw that something changed in her life. There was something really different. And I was, I was curious about what that was. And she said, you know, it wasn't for seven years until she finally told me that what it was is that she had become a Christian. And she said, I was really upset. Why didn't you tell me this before? You see, because if we go on the idea that, well, you know, it's just gonna be my life, that's not necessarily gonna make the connection because you might just be a nice person. Or you might be, uh, for all people know, you're nice because you're a Buddhist or you're nice because you're a Muslim or you're nice, you know, you might even be a nice atheist.
0: the month of April, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. Teens today are faced with challenging questions about the Christian faith. How can they believe that the Bible is true? Who cares if you're a boy or a girl? Isn't love just love no matter what? In her book, 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity, Rebecca McLaughlin addresses these and other questions that teens ask themselves or are confronted with. If you're a parent, grandparent, guardian, or friend, this book will make an excellent gift for a tween or teen to help them tackle the challenging questions of this generation. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer about Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God.